Well, hello, everybody. It is a pleasure to welcome you. It's a pleasure to see you and looking very much forward to our time in God's Word today. I welcome you whether you are in person, maybe in one of our venues in the live auditorium on the Moon Campus, maybe checking this out online today, maybe your house, maybe somewhere else, maybe in the U.S., maybe around the world. We know we have people in all of those places who are checking this out, and so we do welcome all of you, and it's a pleasure to have you here. We are in the middle of uh, just brief little sermon series, mini-series that we just kicked off last week, and it's going to wrap up next week, so very short. We're calling it Resurrected. Resurrected. It's about Easter, yes, but Easter is just the beginning. There's so much more to it, and we're going to dig into that today and see more of where Easter actually leads and the difference that it can make for us. So glad that you are here with us. And as we do so today, I have a question that I want to be asking as we make our way throughout this sermon. And the question is this, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Now, that's a question that is usually asked with some skepticism on the part of the one who is asking the question. For instance, there might be somebody who's interested in hearing a good song or interested in, um, yeah, hearing a good song. And so people come to him and they say, well, we've got a couple of different options for you. And so they say, we can play for you any country song at all, or we can play for you an ensemble of tone-deaf toddlers. And the guy would be like, of course, uh, what difference does it make, right? Because they're pretty much the same thing when it comes down to it. And when you think about, take it, take it easy. And when you think about it, a lot of times, two choices between different things, a lot of times they come out kind of the same, but sometimes they don't. And that's something that I want to demonstrate to you here today. And for that, I need some assistance. And so I asked uh, someone if they'd be willing to come on and help me. And so Gene's here somewhere. I don't know where Gene is. Maybe he left and he's not going to do it. Oh, Gene came on from backstage. All right. Great, Gene. Um, Why don't you come on over and stand over here? And I'm going to come over here onto this side. And we're going to uh, play a little game. We're going to have a little competition if if you're up for that. Thank you for doing this. Gene volunteered. Uh, he'll regret that soon, but he, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. We're going to have a little competition so that we might be able to figure out some things. Now, a, a phone, a smartphone is something that I think we would all say. I asked Gene to bring his smartphone. That's really all he knows. Um, a phone is something that uh, I think that we could all agree is something of pretty good value. And so Gene is going to use his phone, but we're going to have a competition to see who can, who can process some information the fastest. And so that's where Gene's going to get started. And I'm going to use something else, a different sort of technology. A phone is good, but I've got good technology as well that I'm going to use. And so the first thing we're going to do is just to look up a piece of information. He'll use his phone. I'm going to use my technology, which is the World Book Encyclopedia. This happens to be the 1975 edition of the World Book Encyclopedia, which seems fitting because that's the year that this church got its start. And so I think that I'm onto something here. And so we're going to look up a piece of information and he's gonna use his phone. I'm gonna use the World Book Encyclopedia. We'll see who does this fastest, all right? Don't know who your money would be on. I know whose mine would be on, but uh, that doesn't matter. All right, Gene, are you ready? Do you understand? On the edge of my chair. On the edge of your 
chair. Okay, so what we're going to look up first, you ready to go, is lizard. All right, look up whatever information you can find on lizard. Tell me as soon as you've got that. I need to find L. Here's L for lizard. Let's go ahead. Tell me as soon as you find it. Uh, Lewis and Clark, Lightning, Lincoln, Lion, Litany, Literature. You there? Already? Really? You beat me. There it is. Well, it appears as though your technology makes a world of difference when it comes to looking up information. All right. I think that was just lucky. Did I tell you that each round, the winner gets $1,000? Congratulations. That's $1,000 that you win. All right. Now we're going to move on to the second challenge. I think he just got lucky on that one. The second one, we're going to try to find out who can find out the distance it is from here to a certain location in the U.S. And uh, as soon as you figure it out, tell me how many miles it is, all right? Now, you can use your smartphone. You can use whatever app you want to use. I'm going to use my technology, which I think is a little better. I'm going to use a map, all right? This is a map. It's a southern states map. And so when I say go to Orlando, all right, you let me know. Hey, hey, no cheating. I haven't said go yet. All right, ready, set, go. All right, so I got my map here. You just tell me when you get there. Let's see which side is the right side. That's upside down. That's Florida, so I need to start up here. So let's see, where would it? Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. Oh, all right. Uh, there's Pittsburgh. Okay, now let's see. From Beaver Falls, Pittsburgh is. Uh, you have your Wi Fi on over there? Or? You just let me know when you get there. Oh, you're there. You got it. How far is it? Okay. I, okay. I wasn't even to Pittsburgh yet. I guess that uh, the technology makes a world of difference when it comes to that. Um, but I'm going to at least get $100 out of this. You got $1,000. I'm going to get $100 because I was able to get the map folded back up correctly. So uh, there you go. Yes, that's worth some applause, I do think. All right, we're just going to have one more. You're up $2,000 now. Congratulations on that. I'm going to go ahead and swap places with you. If you would uh, come on inside. We're just going to have one more competition. We're going to make a phone call. We're going to see which technology is better and whether or not it actually does make a world of difference. Now, to make this maybe a little bit fairer, I brought my own phone. And so I think this will be better. Now, before the service, I tried to get uh, somebody to give me their phone number that we could use and call somebody who's actually here. Surprising how few people are willing to give me their phone number. But uh, that's, that's the way that it is. So I actually have the phone number right here. As you can see, they're the same phone number. So if you want to take that, um, you'll be able to call them. I'll be able to call them. Again, whoever gets it first wins. All right? Are you ready? Oh, there's, there's just one other thing. Um, I'm going to use my phone. You're going to use the phone too, but uh, this is the phone you're going to use. Okay, this is, uh, it's a phone. It's a legitimate phone, and uh, you're going to go, have you ever used one? Of course you have, you're old. Um, okay, so we're going to go ahead and call. You can come on over. Maybe you can stand here so people can see what you're doing. And uh, when I say go, we'll go ahead and, uh, and place the call. All right, you ready? Ready, set, go. 
How are you coming over there? All right. Keep going. Oh, there, there. Congratulations. This is Jeff. You have won the Publishers Clearinghouse giveaway. And uh, you would get all the prize if you didn't have your phone on in church. But you do, so. All right. Well, that was uh, just a little demonstration. Gene, uh, you lost that one. Did I tell you the last one was double or nothing? Yeah, so um, I'm afraid that didn't work out so well for you. But could we just uh, thank Gene for his participation here today? Feel free to go ahead. And uh, are you going off stage this way? Feel free to go off that way. All right. Well, I do appreciate Gene and uh, his participation in that. Thank you very much for that. I think that uh, one of the things that we can see and one of the things that we can say is that when it comes down to at least technology, we have seen that there are most definitely some significant differences, that it makes a world of difference if you have the right technology when it comes to accomplishing certain tasks. And certainly in that particular experiment, in those tasks, it did make all the difference in the world. And that's actually what I want to be thinking about with you together here is something else that I believe makes all the difference in the world. We're going to take a look at this and see kind of the perspective that you might come at it with, because even though that might be my perspective, It may very well not be yours, but we're going to dig into this and see how it might impact who we are and how it is that we live as we ask this question about what difference does it make. Because there's another claim that I want to take a look at with you, and let's see just how well it might be able to hold water, all right? Now, last week, was Easter, of course, when we talked about the claim of the resurrection of Jesus. And we looked at it from the perspective of a guy named the Apostle Paul. And we saw very interestingly that he had some strong feelings on this. We also saw that he was a guy who was very skeptical when it came to this whole matter of what is this all about. He was very skeptical. So he's an interesting guy to look at, especially when he comes to the place in his life where he totally transforms his perspective from one who's skeptical and a doubter to one who starts to embrace. Well, what is it that brought him to that place? And not only that, but here's the other question that's very important. Even if we come to the place where we would say, I accept this idea that the resurrection is real, we do also then need to ask the question, what difference does it make? And that's where Paul goes as he continues on in this passage that we're going to be looking at. We've been over a number of weeks at Pathway looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's been 2 Corinthians. Well, for this little mini-series, we're dipping into another letter he wrote to the same people. To, and we call it 1 Corinthians, and we're just looking at one chapter in 1 Corinthians, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'd invite you to go ahead and open up there again, if you would like to. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be starting in verse 12 today, and you can follow along as we make our way through this. Now, there are a few different conclusions that Paul draws as he asks what difference the resurrection makes. And I'll give you each of those as we make our way along, and I'll show you his thoughts, and you can agree 
If you would like to, you can disagree. If you would like to, you can make up your own mind, all right? So the first conclusion that he draws when it comes to the difference the resurrection makes is that life is not a waste, okay? When it comes to the resurrection, Paul is making the claim in the case that life then is not a waste, and we'll see how he fleshes this out. Obviously, we're all concerned with making our lives count and not spending time and energy on things that are going to distract us and keep us from what's most important. So it's only natural that we'd be evaluating what it is that we're giving our lives to, right? Doesn't that make sense? I think that makes perfect sense. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing as this passage gets started, because he's got some people who are raising objections about the resurrection. And so he says, okay, let's go ahead and entertain those objections. And if they're true, where does that take us? What's the outcome? What are the dominoes that also fall if this is going to be the case. So he gets right down to brass tacks and shows them where the argument leads. So let's take a look at it. Verse 12, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Jesus came into our world as one who was fully God and also fully man. He lived on this earth and was subject to all of the forces of nature, all the laws of physical life here in this place. He didn't have any of them suspended for him just because he was God. Not at all. There wasn't some day he said, hey, disciples, why don't, why don't we go out golfing? And he decided that he was going to go ahead and claim his divinity and hit holes in one on every hole. He never does that. He set that aside and he comes into our world as one who is fully God, yet fully man. So when he was crucified, he died just like we will one day die. He was buried like we will one day be buried. And when he was resurrected, it was no different than what resurrection would be like for any other person who is fully human. So to accept the resurrection of Jesus is to accept the idea that mankind, who is also fully human, can be resurrected in the same way. And to reject the idea of resurrection is also to reject the notion, the idea, that we ourselves might be resurrected and have heaven as a possibility for our future. The two things go hand in hand. So Paul says, just for fun, let's assume then that the resurrection is a hoax. Let's assume, as some of you are saying in your objection, let's assume that Jesus wasn't raised. Where would that leave us? And so he begins exploring that then as this text goes on, and you'll see it. There's a whole list of things that go on here, beginning in verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That is certainly true. The centerpiece of all preaching is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul preached. That's what Peter preached. That's what Stephen preached. That's what the other apostles preached. That's what the church has been preaching all the way since the time of Paul. Ever since the church was first established, that is the message of the gospel, at least those who are honoring the gospel, are preaching that very thing. It's the central theme of the Bible. And if Jesus is not alive, then the Bible is wrong, and we all may as well just go home now, because there's no point for us to be here. There's nothing that we are listening to or hearing that makes any difference, makes any sense. We may as well just throw in the towel and give it up. There's more. Verse 15 says, more than that, 
we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Jesus or raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Without the resurrection, every time you share your faith, if you do, every time you share your faith with a coworker or with a friend, you're basically just lying to them if there's no resurrection. Every time you tell your children that Jesus is love, you are misleading them if there's no resurrection because the scriptures cannot be trusted because they proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. You see how it works. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. There are only two ways to find victory over sin and favor with God. The first is to be perfect and to never sin. Well, all of us fail on that count. None of us live up to that measure because we all sin. Maybe you lie. Maybe you cheat. Maybe you steal. Maybe you own a cat. There are all sorts of things that you might be doing that are incorrect and that are sinful, right? And so he is acknowledging that very thing that we don't live up to that standard. So that can't be it. So there's a second way to find victory over sin, and that's to have the deadly effects of sin taken out of the way through Jesus. But if there's no resurrection, Jesus didn't win any victory over sin. You're stuck in your sins. He just died, and that's it, and that's the end, and you are left without hope, physically, spiritually, one day you're just going to die and you will be dead spiritually as well. So that leads to the next waste, verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That's specifically saying that those who die trusting in Jesus are trusting in something that's completely empty. It also means that if you're taking any sort of comfort in the fact that one day you're going to have a reunion with some loved one of yours, you're deluding yourself. Because there will be no reunion, because they won't be resurrected, because you're not going to be resurrected if Jesus wasn't. You can see how far this goes into things that are important to us. Then Paul sums up his kind of depressing exercise here in verse 19, where he adds, If only for this life we have, we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, we're a sorry lot if we're just holding to the belief as a crutch so that we might be able to find something to help us through the difficult things of life. If all we're doing is kind of thinking or hoping that there's something out there for the future so that it might help us to get through the things in the present without any substance behind it in the past, then we're most to be pitied, is what he says. Says we're basically out of our minds. Paul says if the resurrection is not real, we're wasting our lives. But that's not what Paul says. He's imagining that argument. He says all of these dominoes fall if there's no resurrection. That's not what he believes. Picking it up in verse 19 again, it says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's Paul's declaration. That's what he holds near and dear to his heart. And he does so because of the experience that he has had. How does he have so much 
confidence in that very thing. Well, last week we took a look at, on Easter, we took a look at some of the things that Paul was holding on to, that he was declaring his things, reasons why he could have such tremendous hope. One of those had to do with all of the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. He was dead, he was buried, he rose again, and then he starts appearing to people, individuals and groups, dozens and then hundreds of people who were there, who saw what happened. And he sat with them, he talked with them, he ate with them. He showed them the nail marks on his hands and on his feet from the crucifixion. But now he's alive and he is walking around. There's that. There's also the experience that Paul had in experiencing the power and the presence of of Jesus. He had his own encounter with him on the road to Damascus. You can go back and you can see the other things that we talked about last week. It's all online for you if you'd like to access it that way. But these are just some of the highlights. And you can also have that confidence because of your own experience. So many of you would be happy to just parade up here one at a time and tell your own experience of the power and the presence of God that you have come to know for yourself. All of it works together for us to have this confidence in what Paul is absolutely proclaiming because he was there, he saw it, he experienced it for himself, that there is a resurrection. And because there is a resurrection, what difference does it make? It makes the difference that life then is not a waste. That the things that we're doing, the things that we are giving our lives over to are not just a waste. Otherwise, absolutely they are. He says, let me just put it in those terms, which is very interesting. What difference does it make? Life is not a waste. There's another one. He goes on. And the second one is this, that death will not prevail. Death will not prevail. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. But we live in a world that makes a lot of pretty bold claims. Now, to think about that, there's there's one person, one guy, who seemed to be making as bold a claim as anybody ever did. guy by the name of Muhammad Ali. Remember Muhammad Ali? Some of you, absolutely. Remember the sorts of things that he said? He said things like, I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. In talking about his his speed in the ring, he said, I'm so fast that if I'm at a hotel room and turn off the light, I'm in bed before the room gets dark. And when some people sort of confronted him on that and said, you know, that's kind of talking arrogantly, he said, it's not arrogance if you can back it up. Let's take a look at Paul. I wonder if Paul can back up, or how does he choose to back up these claims that he's making, like the fact that death will not prevail. Let's take a look at this. Verse 20 goes on, says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the first fruits of those who have died, he's the first, he's the first to be resurrected. That's what that's saying. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, the first man, the original sinner, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, different man, Jesus, fully God, fully man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, the first one, then when he comes, those who belong to him. It's the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead that gives us any sort of confidence that we will be raised too. And that's what Paul's trying to say. There is a future for you. Death will not be victorious. It will not be the end. There's hope for the future. That's what he's saying. Verse 24, then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God to the, uh, the, the, the kingdom to God the Father after he's 
destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, the timing of those final events, that's a timing that we're not aware of. We don't know exactly when that is going to happen, but we can know that Jesus is reigning even now. Satan will not be able to defeat God's plans in this world because God has already won the victory. Now, you might think, as sometimes I think, well, Jesus, then, if you've already won the victory, if everything has already been accomplished, why don't you come back already? Why don't you take care of it? Why don't you take care of all of the circumstances? You've got the power. What about this injustice we see? What about these problems we see? What about this angst and this division that we see all around us? Why don't you just take care of that and be done with it? And I think that's a good question for us to go ahead and ask. That would certainly be nice if that happened. And the response essentially is, well, that will happen. That day is coming. We can look forward to it. And that's what this passage gives us confidence about. In the meantime, however, there is this opportunity, this period of time, where we have the opportunity to participate in the purposes and in the work of Christ. We can demonstrate who Jesus is through the way that we interact, the way that we engage, which is why it's so very vital and important that we would do so as Christ would engage, not as in the way that has turned so many people away from the church that has turned people away from Christianity, that has certainly turned people away from evangelicalism, and move our way in a way that would be in keeping with how Christ responds and the, the attitude and the mindset of Christ. We have the opportunity to be His hands and His feet in that regard, to demonstrate His love, and it's incumbent upon us to do so. We have that opportunity to help to build the kingdom of Christ. And the fact that it's delaying is actually just a demonstration of the goodness and the grace of God because he's giving time for individuals to come to faith, individuals to not be on the downside of not participating in the resurrection or when they're resurrected, it'll be to death instead of to life. We have the opportunity to share in that and Jesus is being patient, the scriptures say, while we have opportunity, while Jesus seems to delay. But the outcome, we need to understand, is already determined. Jesus is already reigning. He's already defeated Satan. There's nothing else that has to happen. There is no chance in the world that Satan is going to emerge victoriously or that death will because it's already been beaten on the cross. It's already been signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered. And we can march forward with that confidence. We can engage knowing that we are partners together with Christ and we have a responsibility to engage in that way. And so if we're just sitting back and kind of sitting on our hands, Jesus would be like, why? Why? The doors are open. The victory has been won. Hope can be found. Join me in the work of the kingdom, he would say. And he's delaying giving us that opportunity. So what difference does the resurrection make? Well, it means that life is not a waste. It means that death will not prevail. Those are great truths. There's one more, and that is that devotion, devotion is not in vain. 
As Paul goes on, he points out another group of people who clearly believe in the resurrection, though they're a little bit unconventional. And it's going to sound that way when you read this. One of the reasons I love to just go verse by verse through passages is because we have to encounter verses like the one we're about to read. It's verse 29. It says this, now, if there is no resurrection, he's still kind of combating that thought among some of his audience, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? What? (laughs) What is he talking about? What is that all about? This verse has caused biblical scholars and average Christians down through all of the years to basically pull out their hair trying to figure out what in the world is he talking about here. And I wish I could tell you that I have figured out what all of the theologians down through the ages have never been able to figure out, but this is uniquely difficult to understand. Now, some people do say, well, I got it figured out. I know what that means. There are whole groups, actually, there are whole denominations of people who would say, well, what this is saying, what this means, and the Mormons among them, what this means is that if an individual dies and you don't really know what happened to them, spirit and soul, you can go ahead and be baptized on their behalf, and because you're baptized for them, they will escape the clutches of hell, and they will be transferred into heaven. That that's what it's saying. That's what they say that this belief. And that's one of the reasons, incidentally, that uh, the Mormons are so content or so interested in determining all of their family line, because you can go back as far as you want to, And this is a pretty convenient belief, especially if you have anybody in your family that you're kind of wondering about. You can just be baptized for them. Now, it's an interesting idea, but it certainly doesn't hold water when it comes to the Scriptures, because we have to entertain all of the Scriptures together. And we know that Paul also said that it's by grace that you're saved, through faith, not through baptism, and certainly not through the baptism of somebody else on your behalf. So, there are actually a a, a number of suggested interpretations of what this means, and and we could spend a lot of time and and march our way through them and still not come down to an absolute conclusion of this is what it means. So, it might just be the most helpful for us to just see it for what it is and talk about it for the reason that Paul included it. See, Paul's using it to point out yet another group of people who believe in the resurrection. They might not have all of the surrounding theology correct, but there's no doubt at all, that this is another group of people who are saying, I believe in the resurrection, and that's why it's important that I would be baptized for these people. And it could very well be that this is kind of a fringe group that's come on the scene, and uh, Paul says, yeah, even those folks, even they believe in the resurrection, those ones who are choosing to be baptized for the dead and so on. Now, Paul just says this for us so that we might see here's another group that believes in the resurrection. He's not suggesting that we try it. He's not saying that this is an important theology for the church. He's just acknowledging that there are some people who have, who are convinced of the resurrection. Going on then, verse 30, and as for us, in contrast to them, As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Paul saying, why in the world would I want to go through all the suffering that I've been going through if this wasn't the real deal, if there really wasn't the resurrection? There's no doubt whatsoever that Paul is 100% absolutely convinced in 
the resurrection. And why not? He's experienced this encounter with Jesus. He's seen the, the eyewitness testimony and all the rest. He is all in. So he just gets down to the bottom line in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. All right, everybody, if this isn't the real deal, let's just eat and drink because tomorrow we die. That makes total sense. If there's no resurrection, if the Bible is false, if the work of Christ is a sham, if the, if the idea of righteousness in God's eyes is hollow, if heaven is a myth, then why bother? Let's just get on with living life, living it up here as much as we can. Do whatever you want. Run with the bulls. Swim with the sharks. Volcanoes surf down an active lava flow, which apparently is a real thing done by real foolish people. Yeah, do whatever you want. Why not? Tomorrow you die and then it's over. That would be the logical conclusion if there's no resurrection. But Paul's already made it clear that life on this earth is not all that there is. He says there is a resurrection. And if we believe that to be true, then there are standards by which we should live to prepare ourselves for the day when we will go into eternity, for the day when we will be resurrected. So Paul says in verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Friends, bad company does corrupt good character. Bad company does corrupt good character. Be discerning about the people that you're spending your time with. Now, that doesn't mean that you should take this as a verse to say, well, you know what, I guess that just means I should only hang out with Christians. I should only hang out in my own small group circle and just keep, that is not what this is saying. The Scriptures are very plain that we should engage with people who are not in the faith, who have yet to come to a belief in the resurrection, of people who have yet to turn their lives over to Christ. That's absolutely essential. But we should not engage in such a way that puts our own obedience to the call of Christ on us at jeopardy, where we might choose to just sort of relinquish or relax our standards and throw in the towel we shouldn't just be hanging out in places and in ways with people who are quite likely going to pull us down, and we know who those people are. And you might have been through circumstances where you've seen that actually transpire in your life. You might be in one of those situations right now. Is that a tricky road to walk, to be engaged with people, to assist them along the journey, but yet not get pulled completely? Yes, that is a navigating challenge that we have in this life, because we do want to be ones who are able to communicate to those who have yet to join in while Jesus is being patient in His return. But we need to be wise, and we need not to use a verse or a passage like this as an excuse to justify our behavior. Paul's just getting right down to brass tacks with all of this. His bottom line is that he wants us to live in the hope of the resurrection, which naturally prompts the question, what difference does it make? And Paul's very clear on that fact. 
And believers down through the last couple millennia have also been very clear on that fact and the way that they have chosen to live, those who are following after Christ, that the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. It means that life is not a waste. It means that death will not prevail. And it means that devotion is not in vain. So where do you come down on this? Where do you come down on this? It's important that we would stop and that we would take stock of this because it has implications in how we live. If there's no resurrection, our time here is just a waste. If there is a resurrection, the time we spend dabbling in the unimportant and the mundane and the non-Christ exalting is a waste. It really calls us to a high standard because it's going to be a waste on one side or the other. If we don't believe the resurrection is real, then you may as well just throw in the towel on trying to pursue Christ. If you do believe it is real, then you really need to examine how serious you are as engaging because if you believe it's real, then the God of the universe walked out of a tomb and He did it for you. And that's so powerful and that is so poignant. It requires something of us, which is not just dabbling, It is jumping in with both feet because it makes all the difference in the world. And so I would just ask you to do the examination. It's not enough, friends. Just just say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. If we really believe in the resurrection, that Jesus walked out of the grave, then it's going to impact the way that we live day by day by day. Does your life reflect that you believe in the resurrection? It's not just hell insurance. It's a call to live a life that honors God, that participates in the building of the kingdom, and that brings glory in all that we do, in all that we say to Him. How much do you believe in the resurrection? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this rather sobering text, actually, that is celebratory in many ways, yet it just forces us to ask where we are, where we're going, just how much we believe in the resurrection. What difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world, in this life and in the life to come. So I just pray that we wouldn't be some of those who sort of claim it as a crutch or claim it as something that might be able to provide for us this this one thing that we very much desire to have, but in the rest of, of life sort of leaves us empty or leaves us just pursuing our own things and when it's convenient, clinging or reaching for the resurrection. Lord, help us to be the people who walk through the center of this, for whom it makes all the difference in the world that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Lord, thank you for this very pointed and poignant text. And I just ask that you would continue to stir our hearts regarding it, that we would jump in with both feet to participating in the building of the kingdom of God as we anticipate your return, celebrating the fact that the victory has already been won. And as a believer in Christ, we are on the winning side and that we can rejoice in that and celebrate together. And we do that now. 
as we give you honor, as we give you glory, as we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, we pray in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.